0: The 10th Collective is an initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design created to help connect black designers searching for their next opportunity with the companies that want to hire them. So if you're a black designer and you're looking for a new job, go to the 10thcollective.com to sign up for free or check out the link in the show notes. We're here to help you find your next big opportunity today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast. A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Now, before we jump into this week's interview, it's that time of year again. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that in May we do our annual audience survey. So this year you can go to survey.revisionpath.com and fill it out. Should take you about 10 minutes or so tops. Now, we've been doing this audience survey for, I think, about as long as we've done the podcast. I mean, the survey really helps Revision Path keep going in a lot of ways. I don't know if I really talked about this before, but the data from that survey helps us in three particular ways. Uh, The first way is that it helps us get sponsors because sponsors want to know who's listening to the show. They want to know those demographics. Um, It actually really helps us get guests. Uh, More and more guests lately want to see our audience stats before they agree to come on the show, which is a thing now that podcasts are like out there in the general public consciousness. Uh, But mostly it helps us learn what you like about revision path and what you don't like about revision path. We take all that feedback. We put it into planning. We use it to help improve the show and the platform as a whole. I mean, that's how we've been able to stick around for 10 years and over 500 episodes. Like this is not done in a vacuum. Like this is done completely with your participation as well. So, again, go to survey.revisionpath.com. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. And please take the survey. Let us know how you feel. Survey is going to close this year on June the 5th. Thank you very much. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S. Particularly, brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual based freelance life with no non competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit Creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Victor Ware. Victor is an art director at Wide Eye in Washington, D.C. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do.
1: All right. My name is Victor Ware. I'm an art director at uh, Wide Eye Creative currently. And yeah, I was specializing in branding. I've been doing that for about six years now, specializing in branding. And yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing, what I've been focusing on.
0: How has uh, the year been going for you so far? How's twenty twenty three been treating you? Twenty
1: twenty three has actually been like really good to me. I uh, I just transferred to to Wide Eye, coming from another job. So like this has been my first time like being a a full fledged art director, and it's been really successful. I feel like at home at at this agency. Yeah, it's been going so far, really good, and uh, we've created a lot of projects for in the advertise not the advertising space in the political space we have some like some other creative agencies that we're working for it's just been really really good
0: yeah i saw that wide eye i think this might have been maybe like a year or two ago uh was like recognized by fast company it's like one of the best agencies in the yes.
1: country yes yes and I, I can say like that is not an exaggeration like the people there are super talented they are very driven and and just kind i think Wherever you work, like that's one of like the the biggest things you you look for, at least me, I look for I look for like actual like people caring about people. Um the work is super important, the work is is always going to to have that importance, but I think how you treat people is far above beyond like more important than that.
0: Yeah. Now aside from the the change over to wide eye, like have there been any other things that you've noticed this year, that's different from last year. Like, have there been any
1: changes for you? Oh, yeah. Actually, that's the personally, you know, I, I moved to to Baltimore a couple of years ago from D.C. and bought a house and living with my partner. And we're like, you're really coming into our own and, and, you know, trying to build a life. I don't know. It's, it's kind of this like leveling up, you know, my career, my personal life. And it's been good so far. Nice. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Let's talk more about about wide eye. I'm curious, like,
0: what is a, a typical day like for you there?
1: Yeah, I think a typical day. You know, I'm managing one uh, other designer, so I'm checking in with them. I'm checking on projects. Usually, I'm I'm on two to three projects, branding projects. So either you know, making sure we're getting deliverables out the door for our clients. We also uh, have retainers on, on uh, for clients. And then and checking in on those projects, there's always that kind of like balance between like things that are due right now, things that will be due later in the week, and then things that are due in a month. So always kind of like checking and making sure I'm on top of things. And then, yeah, and then I have time to design. <laughs> so that's either like, you know, building a new logo or brand guidelines. Uh, part A big part of my job is maintaining brand guidelines and, and creating those. So that you know, when we hand those over to clients, they they have the best shot of executing their their brand that we put all this energy into, and they put all this energy into to make sure it will be useful and and work for many years to come. And then the other thing is meetings. I feel like a lot of designers hate meetings, but we really try to make sure our meetings are purposeful. That we have a, an agenda. That we know why we're having a meeting and. That usually helps a lot. So, yeah, that's kind of my typical day.
0: You know, that's good that you get to have some, like, hands-on time with the work. Yes. Know?
1: I love being, like, a, a designer. Like um, like I, I mentioned before, like, you know, this is my, my first time being a full-fledged art director and having more of that, like, strategic or, or managerial role. So I don't want to, like, lose my skills as a designer either. So I'm I'm kind of building both of those skills at the same time. But yeah, I I love creating. Uh, This is why I I got into this originally.
0: You know, I've had other art directors and other folks working at agencies on the show. And, you know, it's hard for them to kind of get that time to be able to do that because, yeah, you are managing projects. You're doing a lot of checking in. Like you mentioned, you're doing meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, But it sounds like things are structured at Wide Eye where you still get that opportunity to get hands on with the work. You you mentioned that you're you're managing another designer. What does the team look like that you generally work with?
1: We have a a pretty small team. So we have, uh, we kind of break it down to, we have interactive side, we have our branding side, and we have a couple of designers specializing in motion design as well. Really a small and nimble team uh, with, you know, designers, we have engineers, project managers, and then also like, you know, operations folks that help keep the business running. I would say there's about, you know, 30 to 40 people uh, working total at, at wide Eye right now. And yeah, it, it's like a perfectly oiled machine. Um, everyone that comes on board just kind of fits. Like I think they've done a really good job of of creating a team that is optimized to to really do the best results. And then like I mentioned before, like people that are just good people, that's that I think that makes it even more special.
0: Now I'm curious. With wide eye having the reputation that it has, I mean even some of its clients like the White House, Democratic National Convention, et cetera, and I know that wide eye is not specifically just about like progressive politics in that sense. <laughs> a couple of episodes ago, I had on Rudy Manning. he's an agency owner he owns Pastilla Inc out in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. and you know we were talking about like the future of agencies. what does it mean to be an agency in the world that we're currently in, particularly when you think about like the rise of AI technologies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, is that something that you are dealing with now in your work? Like, are you having those conversations?
1: Yeah. It's something that has come up a lot. You know, one of our creator directors is, is very interested in technology and how I I would say we all are to some extent, like how that changes design, how it could benefit design and, you know, what that means for the landscape and for our careers, you know, we've started experimenting with, like, you know, adding either, like, chat B- GBT into, like, writing copy or using it for brainstorming. I think the way I look at, like, technology is throughout design history, it's it's always kind of changed how we work. If you go back from typesetting and, like, using the printing press and, and letter press, you know, all the way to like to now, everything's digital. I think we just kind of learn and grow with with the technology and use it to our advantage. And so that's what I'm hoping happens. I know there's a lot of fear that this will devalue design or it will make designers obsolete. Uh, but I, th- I think the opposite. I think designers are always we're always at the forefront of, of technology. We're always trying to use that to communicate better. And so I'm, I'm hoping I'm, and I'm hopeful that the rise of AI technology will just help us communicate better if we use it right. And that's that's the key. Like, are we using it correctly? And so that's that's probably the biggest question. What would you say is the correct way to use it? As a tool as a, and not as a, a replacement. I think we, we should never forget that all of us are, are people at the end of the day, like, you know we're talking to people we're designing for people people are using our products and and they're interacting with our websites or our brands or whatever we shouldn't forget that we shouldn't just think of people as commodities or or as tools of, the, of themselves like no we're we're building these for for other people like ourselves we should use our tools whether it's ai or or you know just regular dumb tools to like help and make the world better and yeah it's a, it's a challenge because i there are always you know those people who are who aren't focused on doing the the best so i think it, it's up to us to who are like interested in in doing good to push that agenda even more
0: mm-hmm. it's interesting you know i'm writing a book right now i mentioned this on the on the show before mm-hmm. and i've been using chat gpt not to like well, I mean to help me write the book. I sort of use it as a good assistant. Mm-hmm. So if like I need to find a lead or something that I need to pursue in terms of research, it's been really great for that, especially for specific like figures I may not know or people I may not be super familiar with. You know, there's only so far I think that you can go with just strict internet research. Yes, and yes. what Chat GPT kind of helps me to do is at least send me partially down the right path. Now I will admit it's not. And for people that it's not perfect, I mean, and in some cases it's not even correct. That's true. No, in a lot of cases,
1: (laughs) it's funny. I've seen like I've seen a lot of examples where it's just got things totally wrong, or just makes up stuff. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And so, like, I think that is also like the the thing that we have to be wary of. It's like we can't give too much control over it. We have to make sure we're we're still living in the real world.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was doing research on, on one person. I'm not going to mention who it is because they're in the book, but I was doing research on this person and I like asked chat GPT. I'm like, okay, assume that you are a world renowned like civil rights scholar. Tell me in two or three paragraphs who this person is or whatever and where I can find more information on Mm -hmm. them. And one of the things it said was like, oh, you can go to the University of Chicago's like daily library. No, I think it was University of Illinois in Chicago. You can go to their library and they have like a whole section of his letters and all this stuff. So I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Right? It's exciting. (laughs) I go to the website. I go to like chat with the librarian and I tell them, yeah, I've heard you've got this you know, archive of letters and things, and how can I gain access to it? And the librarian was like, we don't have that. <laughs> Where did you hear that from? I'm like, uh, sorry. Be- <laughs> <laughs> because a, a computer told me. Right. right <laughs> the computer told me that you had it, and they don't have it. I'm like, well, shit. I mean, but it was good, because at least it didn't, you know, send me too far down like a rabbit hole that wouldn't yeah. have went anywhere. So now I'm like, okay, okay. That was a wrong lead. Let me pursue something else. You know, and research I think can kind of be like that. Sometimes you get
1: mm-hmm, sent on true. these
0: wild goose chases, and I guess what Chat GPT at least helped me to do in this particular instance is sort of cut it off at the pass. Like, oh, don't do that.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think I think like just like we had to to learn how to use Google, for instance. Like I think we we have to learn how to use AI tools. Uh, I remember the first time I, I used Google. I was in like the eighth grade. No, I was younger than that. I was probably in the fourth grade um, trying to research a project. I had to go to the the public library and they had to show me how to use the Google. It's weird like now, because like now we all use all these tools like daily. It's on our phone, it's on our work computers, on our personal computer. It's so ubiquitous we don't think about it. And I think that's basically how AI tools will evolve. It'll become a part of our, Life without us really knowing. And that sounds scary, but it, it's also like something that we've seen before. Like, right. uh, for example, autocorrect. Autocorrect, we use it all the time. It's the most helpful thing. We mm-hmm. we don't have to <laughs> remember how to spell long words like expialidocious or something. And yeah, it's those kind of little tools that are helpful, that are ubiquitous, that we don't notice until it becomes you know, that part of our lives.
0: Right. Like, I remember, I don't know, maybe this was about five or six months ago when people started rolling out the AI avatars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one, there were people that were saying, I can't believe you're paying for that. You're paying for that, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff, which I think gets into a whole other conversation around people that are using these sorts of things and then going to humans, expecting them to like alter or change or make corrections yes. on what mm-hmm. the AI has done. Like that's a whole other conversation. But you know, the thing is that we've been so used to face app and Facetune and some form of like digital retouching and all that sort of stuff that yep. AI avatars are not that much of a stretch to the imagination past that. And because these models are trained on pictures that honestly we are putting online, like people put an immense amount of personal data There's online, on so social, yes. social media We're feeding the machine that's making this happen. So can we really be that mad at it? I don't know. It's a really tricky conundrum. I think the ethics around it are still something that folks are trying to iron out, even just on a personal level. Yep. Like I've had to tell people, even for the show, like if you're going to send me a picture, like send me a picture. Don't send me an AI avatar. Exactly. I prefer it to be you, not because we're talking about you. We're not talking about your
1: avatar or whatever. But yeah. yeah. Uh, amorphous representation of you, like yeah, it 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 does, and that's that's where I, I say like it's that that scary part because I think we're we're always pushing this line. And when I say we, I mean humanity as a collective. We're always pushing this line of technology and and what the next new thing, and we're blurring this line between real and the virtual. And I think that's going to be it's just going to get more confusing. But I'm hoping that. We kind of figure it out as we we continue to do. Like I feel like in this time in history, it feels like technology is by and large a, a benefit, and I'm hoping that remains for the foreseeable future.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. What would you say is the best thing about the work that you do?
1: I would say that the best thing is is really being creative, is getting to work on new and exciting problems for, you know, a variety of people, you know, I've gotten, and this is not just for where I'm at today, but throughout my career, like I've gotten to work on, on new things that challenged me and, you know, allow me to, to think about problems in a different way and, and be creative. You know, I've always been a kind of a creative person, even since I was a really young kid and, you know, loved like doodling and, and drawing cartoon characters I would, (laughs) Tape Dragon Ball Z and I'll pause it so I can draw the characters. Um, I don't know it was just a, it was a way to, to express myself and a way to just have fun so I'm grateful to be in this this field because you know I can still have fun even in my my daily job even though it's still a job it's still hard it's still days where I'm frustrated and <laughs> burnt out but at the end of the day like I'm grateful that I can do you know what I love.
0: Yeah. You know, there's there's some saying about how, even when you think about what you're going through right now, think about who you were 10 years ago, like you would have wished to yes. be at the place that you're at now. So it kind of is yes. helpful to put it in perspective.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. I think about myself 10 years ago, like 10 years ago, I I was just graduating, or I was probably still in uh, design school. And like, I don't know if I would dream I would be in this exact position, so, yeah, I am lucky in that regard. And even even if you're not where you where you think you should be or where you want to be, I think there's so many different possibilities of where you could be <laughs> and it could be worse or it could, it could be better, you know, but I think we, we have to be grateful for our situations and, and not lose sight of what we're striving for, but also be in the moment, you know, like this is a good moment or this is a bad moment and be grateful for it.
0: Yeah. Let's get more into your background. You know, you mentioned being really creative at a young age. Tell me more about that. Like, were you introduced a lot to art and design growing up?
1: Yeah, I think my mom, uh, she raised me and my, my brother. Uh, she, was, she was a single parent. We grew up in in D.C. My mom's from D.C. My grandfather's from D.C., so we go way back. And she always encouraged us to paint or draw. She would spend time with us and and. You know make paintings um she loved to draw as well i remember like she would draw characters and i don't know we had a lot, a lot of fun as a family doing that she would take us to museums you know we would go to to parks we had a lot of time to to kind of explore the world in a really positive way and she encouraged me to be creative she encouraged me to express myself so i'm, I'm grateful for that as well like it really helped me like just pursue what I wanted to do. I was also really interested in science as a kid. I wasn't sure if, you know, I wanted to be a scientist or be an artist. I really wanted to be an artist, and I feel like I've met somewhere in the middle because I feel like design is, you know, very analytical. It's very logical, but it also is very creative. I found a happy medium in the end.
0: When did you know that this was something that you really wanted to like study and get into?
1: Yeah, I figured that out in high school. I took art for all on um, four years. It was an elective at my high school, and I just loved it. I was like, I started looking up colleges. I was like, okay, I can actually go to school for this. I really want to be an illustrator. That was my my initial goal, and I got accepted to a, a few schools um, in New York and Chicago and D.C. And so I chose I chose to stay in D.C. Uh, it made sense financially. The Corcoran College of Art and Design is where I attended, but they didn't have an illustration program. They 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 had a design program, Mm -hmm. so I said, okay, I'll I'll try this out. I had already been experimenting with like Photoshop or not really Photoshop, the free version of Photoshop. I don't know if you know about GIMP or you know about Mm -hmm. uh, Inkscape. So I was was using like I you know I didn't have any money. I didn't I didn't even have a laptop at the point when when I first went to school. I didn't have a laptop for the first year, and I struggled so hard because (laughs) you're majoring in design and you don't have a laptop. Like you, you're gonna have to like spend extra hours at school working. So I did that, and it was difficult. Um, But yeah, like I I learned on free software, and I was just having fun. You know, I I was really into music. I still am. I really love like album art, and so I was designing my own album art. Mm. I was designing album art for my brother, who's also a musician. And yeah, it, it was that's how I got into it. And I was like, oh, okay, and I started learning about the fundamentals and in school, and I was like, okay, I can do this. Uh, this is not that bad. Like, I know I wanted to be an illustrator but you know, I'm I'm good at this design thing. Yeah. Um, and now I'm <laughs> made a whole career out of it.
0: It's interesting how there's such a connection between like design and music in that way. I guess cuz they're yes. both just like these pure forms of creative expression, but I remember cutting my teeth on doing like fake album designs and stuff. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I didn't use GIMP and, Inks, and Inkscape though. I mean, I've heard of them, but mm-hmm. I use like. Well, I mean, I was. This was back in the day. I was using basically like a cracked version of Photoshop that didn't give my computer a virus. <laughs> <or> <laughs> something. But I would do that, and I would go to like a bookstore, like a Barnes and Noble, and you know how they had those. Like Photoshop tips and tricks books and all this. Yes, sort of stuff. yes, no. And and those and they would have these big magazines, these like ten or fifteen dollar magazines that always came with a CD. Yep, yep. Um, I would copy the tutorials out of there and then go home and try to like recreate stuff. Like that's how I taught myself how to use Photoshop, how to use Illustrator. Yeah. And I guess in the in the process of doing that, I'm also teaching myself about typography, sure. negative space, color, mm-hmm. things like that. Like. And a lot of it was making fake album covers, like for groups that don't mm-hmm. exist, for artists that are not real people. Just taking a stock photo and being like, what can I do with this? How can yes. I change this around? You know, it's it's so interesting, that connection between those two.
1: Yeah, I was doing the same things. Uh, you know, I, I watched so many tutorials online, like uh, psdtoots.com. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> that was, <laughs> I remember going there and, and just like. Oh, this is a new thing I, I've never tried before. And yeah, it was it was just a lot of that. Like, I was excited to learn and just having fun with it, you know, not with any kind of intention of like, oh, I'm going to be this kind of designer or I'm going to. I just wanted to like have fun. And like I said, I, re- I really love music. I was making my own music and, you know, making the album art for it. And that mm-hmm. was fun. And I saw that connection between them. But I've noticed like, there's like this weird like percentage of designers who are also musicians. Yeah. And, and it's like really scary because you're like, I honestly like maybe I want to say two out of three mm-hmm. designers in a room and you're like, Oh, okay. You make music. Okay. Of course you do.
0: Yeah. I was a musician before I started getting into design. I played trombone all through middle school, through high school and college out of college. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> yeah. Did you play anything? Were you a, a singer? Or like, what did you do?
1: I, I sang. Uh, I was in choir for a, for a very long time. Um, okay. I taught myself the piano. I'm not a good piano player by any means, but I learned a little bit and I could produce my own beats and, and things like that. And yeah, that was my kind of outlet after school. I would come home, rush home and spend hours making music, you know, and then I would do some design tutorials. <laughs> and that <those laughs> was always like intertwined for me, you know?
0: Yeah. Now tell me more about the the school, about Corcoran. Like, do you feel like they really helped prepare you for the design world
1: while you were there? It was the like oldest design school in in DC. Very, very famous gallery. You know, they've been around for a long time. And I feel like the education was very traditional. You know, there was a lot of focus on print. You know, a lot of my teachers have been working in the design field for for decades. I got A really good like basis on theory on history we had just amazing teachers on even on the technical side but i would say like it had nothing to do with what i ended up doing (laughs) so like i said there was a lot of focus on print design on uh which is good though because i think you learn all the the fundamentals the you know gestalt you learn color theory you learn how to lay out type and so I think having that basis was really helpful. When I graduated, I straight went to doing UI and UX design, which really I hadn't learned a whole lot in school. I had to learn a lot on the job, but I had that that foundation that really like helped me uh, just in give a kickstart. Uh, so I could, I didn't I wasn't floundering. But I had to learn a lot about UI conventions. I had to learn about like HTML and CSS and how those things work. And I had, I had to learn what UX design was. It, I, I feel like it was still like product design wasn't a, like a title yet, really. Yeah. It was fascinating. And so like, there was a, it was a lot of new stuff. I was learning how to design for iOS apps and, and Android and what the difference was. But yeah, it was exciting. It was an exciting time. But yeah, I would say school prepared me for, prepared me to learn more. Yeah, Does that make sense?
0: I mean, you were in school during the time when the web was really exploding in like such a, a massive way. Like, yes, we're talking about the rise of HTML five. We're mm-hmm. talking about the move or uh, the, the huge move away from table based layouts to CSS. And yeah, UI and UX weren't really even talked about as a thing yet. No, because no. and that's not to say they didn't exist. I don't think the it terminology was really there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't formalized in a way where people could learn about it. And like schools, I can tell you schools were not on it at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of places were were still catching up. I mean, I taught design for two years in, I think it was like 2012 to 2014, something like that. And when I started, they were still teaching like table-based web design. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. This has to be css like we can't be teaching these students this kind of stuff and then they go out to try to get a job and nobody's going to hire them because all their designs are dated like we got to teach them what is actually being used now in the industry yes Um, and that was such a massive change just even from a department standpoint because they're like well we have to change curriculum we have to change tests i was like well you're gonna have to do it now because the industry is not only is the is the industry changing in terms of what is being done in terms of the the languages and stuff like that, but even the browser itself is shifting from being something that exactly. used to be strictly presentational to now being a workspace. Exactly. So cross-browser compatibility, all these different like frameworks and JavaScript libraries and all this stuff—the things that you're able now to do in a browser—you really could not do ten or fifteen years ago. Oh no, like no, it's no, a it would massive be shift. Yeah,
1: yeah. the way we work in browsers now is, is was unthinkable. Like, yeah, I mean, one, no browser can handle <laughs> what we're doing now, like right. even close to, like, everything is kind of like sh- the speed as, of everything that's developed since that time is lightning. Like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, everyone talks about like the shift from like web 2.0 to 3.0, but I mean, I, we're really we're talking about like the shift from 1.0 to 2.0. And it, that was a, a big, big, big jump. I think like the big players were were just kind of solidifying their mm-hmm. their stance in the, in the in the playground, like the Googles, the Facebook. That's when they really became like these big behemoths. And but yeah, before that, like there was AOL and Netscape and Yahoo. <laughs> but yeah, and, and no one had seen like these Goliath companies you know, the Amazons of the world before, like and yeah, it just happened really, really quickly.
0: Yeah. Speaking of AOL, oh um, <laughs> you worked there I for, did. for a little over four years. This is after you graduated from Corcoran. Tell me about that. Because first of all, I didn't I was doing my research. I was like, I didn't even know AOL was still around. I remember getting the CDs, the American yes. Online CDs in the mail as a teenager. Oh, we had
1: those. We had those, yeah. <laughs> we had, no, in the office they were still they were still there. Oh wow, um, okay, interesting. <laughs> so, one of my professors at the Corgan College of Art Design, he was a creative director at AOL, and he he was like, "There's this internship, apply." And and because um, I was I was a junior at the time, so yeah, that's that's how I got my first job. And then after he left AOL, I ended up staying. I, I was just there for for four years, and that like I was saying like. I learned a lot about UI and UX design. Um, my first job was working on the AOL homepage. We also worked on AOL's first news app that went in the the iOS store and and Android store. They hadn't had, which was just crazy. I'm like, they not had an app before. And yeah, it was. It was I learned so much in that job. Like. Like as I was mentioning before, like most of my education was more print focused. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was very traditional, and now I'm like designing web pages, which I was like, I don't know. I I thought I was going to be working on a magazine or something. (laughs) Um, It was really, it was really fun. Um, We had a really small and nimble team, and I just learned so much. It was fun, and the only reason I left (laughs) AOL is one thing is they they were notorious for laying people off. Um, So I, I hanged in there as long as I could and, and I did get laid off, but it was fun. Like I, I, like I said, I really learned a lot and yeah, it it was weird being at a a place that, you know, I remember from, from my childhood and the dial up tone and, and just seeing all that and they had this huge campus in, in Virginia near Dallas airport. You can see like how big AOL used to be. It was kind of like weird to be in the, in a company where it's, it's not at this heyday. Like it's slowly becoming less relevant, but we were still working. We were still working on things. We were still bringing out new products. We were still, you know, trying to compete with like the the other players in the game. So, I I do enjoy the people I worked with um and and the time I spent there.
0: Yeah, it's interesting about those those old companies. We still have Earthlink. Yeah, Atlanta. really. Yeah, 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 wow. yeah. That threw me for a loop because I remember. When Earthlink used to be like in Midtown, it was a pretty big deal when it first, you know, came mm. about. Now it's a little bit further out in town, but I didn't even know they were still a thing, just in terms of it being right. an internet service provider. I was like, people use Earthlink on purpose? <laughs> it's I, I did not know it was still around because you know, a lot of those older yes. web 1.0 companies just kind of mm. either faded into obscurity yeah, or, or they God just gobbled up. Right, exactly, you know. So it was just very few from that era that still were around. You mentioned this art director at AOL was actually a, a mutual colleague of ours, Ted Irvine. Yes, Ted Irvine, yes. Yeah. Tell me more about kind of working with him. What was that like?
1: He was my instructor at Corcoran teaching After Effects. He was like very good at, at teaching. I, like, I'm not a motion designer, so um, he made it easy enough for me to understand. That was that was good. Um, working for him was was really fun. Um he wasn't at AOL super long by the time I joined. Mm-hmm. It was good to work with him. Um, there was also a few other people I knew from Corcoran that that worked there. And it was just a, a good environment. Like, we we knew each other. We we knew each other's backgrounds. So we knew where, where we were coming from, from a point of view. And it was very collaborative. He was a good mentor. You know, he actually ended up moving to uh, SB Nation, which became Vox Media. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up joining him in Vox Media <laughs> not, you know, four years later. So it, it was just good to see him again then. And it was it was good working um, overall.
0: Yeah, it's a small world. I think people who have been long time, like longtime listeners of Revision Path remember that we used to do some stuff with Vox Media back in 2015. I think want to say 2015, 2016 like I was doing some consulting with their product team and then box ended up being a sponsor of a vision mm-hmm. path for a little while. Mm-hmm. So I got to like go to the office and like yeah. sit down with the team. Actually I had, you know, mm-hmm. I, I can tell this story. And I interviewed for a job there. Didn't get it, but uh,
1: <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I'll tell you this. Like the first time I interviewed there, I didn't get the job. I interviewed there twice. <laughs> oh really? Yes. Yes. I Yeah. I went to work on the website and I didn't get that job. Uh, I ended up the job I did get the second time I interviewed was working in advertising, their advertising uh, their custom ad, what they call Revex. Mm-hmm. And then after a year doing that, they moved me to the brand team, which I worked on for five years.
0: I went through six rounds of interviews for a, I think it was the product team coordinator position mm-hmm. and didn't get it. But after I ended up consulting, for a year. I think you you probably were there when that, when Ashley was there because right? she was yes. the product team coordinator. Yeah, I was yeah. there. Yeah, Ashley's great, by the way. This is no she, this she is, is no is, slight to her, but I I went through six rounds and I was so pissed. <laughs> I was so bad. I did oh. not get that interview because after you know they were doing the consulting. It was a a lot of the consulting I did was around DEI stuff. They were like, yeah, well, how do we get mm. more black people to work here? And I was like, gee, I don't know. How do we get more <laughs> black people to work here? Yes. I wouldn't know anything about that, you know, but. <laughs>
1: It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, actually, one, one of the last projects I worked on before leaving Vox Media was around their DEAI um, initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we did is revamped it, rebranded it, amplifying voices to make sure that one, we're, we're focusing that message of, of how we are incorporating more diversity into the work. And then two, making sure like that's loud and clear to both internally and externally. And that was a very like meaningful project to me. I work with uh who who's the head of DE and I I think he's still there. Chris like very very like inspirational person. And yeah, I think you know they they really took it serious. But yeah, it, it's very important to make sure like you don't just have one type of person in design field and in the tech field in in general, and have that that opening up for for doors for people like. Uh, like me, like who, who probably traditionally we didn't get that those opportunities, mm-hmm. um, or like I didn't even know design was a, a an option really growing up until I started looking, and that that was just by happenstance that I ended up in in graphic design because like you know, like I said like I was going to go a whole different route, but yeah I'm 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 hoping like that projects like that continue to open doors for people who who don't get those opportunities normally.
0: Yeah. I think the person you're talking about is Chris Claremont,
1: right? Yes. Chris Claremont. Yes.
0: Yeah. And for folks, listen, not the X-Men, Chris Claremont, yeah. though it is spelled the same, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't think a new Chris, Chris might've been a little bit after the time that I, I work with them, but I, I do remember, and this was something, I mean, again, I can talk about this now because the, the NDA is up, but at the time I remember going in talking with the product team. And I mean, they had nothing in terms mm-hmm. of like, diversity and inclusion stuff. Yeah. They didn't even no. have like a survey to know how many people of color worked in the product team. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, let's start there. Let's do no, that we, first. We, <laughs> they,
1: we, we had a, a, our own uh, Slack channel just for the, the Black people that worked there. Mm-hmm. And we kept count. We, know, we knew exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> it was a problem. It was a problem. I, I have to say that. like, And I think it took them time to recognize that yeah, um, Vox Media like is one of those companies that, especially because you know they they have Vox, it was like one of those progressive companies. Like you knew like okay, they have these values, and I think what happens with sometimes is that they don't see like their blind spots. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it's hard because you're like okay, we're doing all this great work, we're progressive, but it's like no, we we still have work to do just because we're we're pushing. These progressive ideas and we're moving forward doesn't mean we don't also have work to do. I think that's what we all kind of have to remember, no matter where we're working, no matter what we're doing, is that we all we all have work to do. We still are not where we need to be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of companies back then during that period, that was a very common thing, because I think, you know, the clarion call was really starting to go out in the tech community around that time Mm -hmm. about diversity and inclusion yeah. But in a way that made everyone accountable, like you started to see statistics about the percentage of people of color on workforces and things like this. And yeah. companies were really trying to find ways to implement, you know, different programs or things of that nature to really sort of increase that. So, yeah, that was that was really emblematic of that yeah, time. Exactly. Uh, and, and speaking uh, of which, and not to go too much more, I know we've talked a lot about about Vox and I don't want to skip this part. <laughs> Right before you left AOL and before you went over to Vox, you started your own studio, Um uh, yes. called Studio Never Sleeps. What mm-hmm. made you decide to to strike out on
1: your own like that? I actually always kind of wanted to, to be an entrepreneur, and this was like a dream that I had from when I was a, a kid. So that it was partially that. It was also partially uh, because I needed some money. <laughs> I, you know, I was I, like I said, I I grew up poor. I didn't have a lot of money growing up, e- even after design school, like, you know, I had bills to pay. I was in debt. I wanted to be more self-sufficient. Like one thing about being laid off of a job, you kind of realize like, Oh, <laughs> nothing's permanent. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nothing's permanent. Like um, nothing's really guaranteed uh, unless you build something for yourself. Um. So partially that was a reaction to that. And then also, like, like I said, like I really wanted to have my own vision and, kind of do things my way it was a good like run where i was doing freelance i was doing really small projects after a while like i started building regular clients i started working on larger projects on on, uh, web design a lot of the projects i was doing back then was web design and it became a thing and then while when i was after aol i had to you know find more employment i ended up working at uh, usa today as a freelancer under, under the student never sleeps moniker. And as a contractor, that was also a very great experience like of running a, a business and, and having other projects. But it was really great to have one client also uh, that I knew I can count on that continual check. So it was something that I'm grateful for that I took a chance and and learned a lot about how to, to manage like books and how to you know write proposals how to put together presentation decks it was hard it's not easy being a freelancer um so i applaud anyone that (laughs) runs a a creative agency or runs their own business but yeah it's it's still a goal of mine to to be able to one day like have a, a fully fledged business and be able to hire people be able to you know create opportunities for other people
0: How was it sort of balancing full-time work and doing these, you know, kind of freelance works at your studio?
1: I mean, it was, it was a lot of working at night. You know, I had a full-time job working in a day and then um, meeting with clients at at night. Um, I had a a business center at my apartment complex and I I would have clients come by, like, I need this logo for this thing. And like, it was kind of crazy looking back at it. I think, I was just hungry. I was I was a lot younger. And you know, I, I was like, okay, I can do this. I can I can stay up. I can do 12-hour days. I can do 15-hour days. But it did take a toll. Like it was it's not easy. And keeping track of all that stuff and and, and constantly trying to find clients and and working around uh, deadlines. But I, I made it work. I just a lot of sleepless nights. That's kind of that's kind of the joke in the, the name oh, the,
0: of the name Studio never <laughs> Sleep. Yeah,
1: because <that we're> <laughs> yeah. I, I was not sleeping.
0: <laughs> wow, I remember those those early days when I had my studio trying to. You know, I would tell people, you know, the great thing about being an entrepreneur is that you always work half days, any twelve hours you want. Um, <laughs> and it's it's true. Like you that's, sometimes that's, just get yeah. so into it, and you're doing everything yourself until you manage to like. you know, get a network or build out a team. It's, it's a lot to try to pull together.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: And now you're at wide eye. Now you're, you're doing this great work as an art director. What advice would you give to someone that's like listening to this? They're hearing your story and they sort of want to follow in your example and become Mm -hmm. an art director. What would you, what would you tell them?
1: Yeah, I would say one, like there's no one path to getting to this, this field, to this job or even my role specifically. I think, a lot of people are are trying to, when they see someone in a place they want to be, they want to replicate it exactly. And I would say that there's so many routes to this. I think the the main thing is like dedication to learning and to, to growing. And when I say learning, I don't mean you have to go to design school. I don't mean like you have to, to go on online and look up tutorials. There's so many different ways, like whether it's a boot camp, whether you're just drawing and teaching yourself or you're just playing around on free design programs like i did some of the best designers i know didn't go to design school some of the best designers i know went to graduate school or some of the designers i know were doing something totally different before they decided design was their their passion there's no one road and i think that's that can be freeing a little bit because to know that you can carve your own path is for me at least I think a great thing to know like, that you don't have to do this this one way. You don't have to, to go to design school and then go intern at this agency and then get this job at AOL. Like, No, you don't have to do all that. You can start today and, and decide you want to be a designer. Or if you want to shift careers, you can, you can do that and start. I think the most important thing is, is starting and, and being humble and, and saying like, okay, I, I have to learn and being happy to learn.
0: Who are some of your
1: like influences for your creative work? Who inspires you? I would say like a guy I work with Alex Medina. He is a super talented creative director. We work together at Vox Media. I'm like, I I love his work. A lot of people that I went to design school with or um, art school with are working artists now and their work is amazing. I really love like just seeing what's coming up. There's a, a, Young designer Josiah, who's been doing a lot of like stuff for music industry, Almart. Like I love seeing that that type of stuff. So I gather inspiration from all the like up and coming designers, people who are just hungry and willing to try something different and new. And so that gives me a lot of energy and and makes me want to just do something different. At this stage of where
0: you're at in your career, like when you look back over, you know, the past ten years from Corcoran to AOL to Vox to now, like, do you feel creatively
1: satisfied? That's a hard question. I think yes and no. I mean, yes, I, I feel like I feel satisfied that I am able to create and I'm able to express mm-hmm. myself and and solve these, like, creative problems. But I think part of being an artist or designer is, is a little bit of that, like, never- feeling completely satisfied you're always like there's more that i could do there's another level i can can reach you know i think about painters who who've painted the same subject over and over again and but never really feel they've captured the essence of it so that's how i feel like i i'm satisfied in the moment of creating but after it's done i'm like okay what's the next thing (laughs)
0: Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what do you want the next chapter of your story to look like?
1: At this stage, I really want to continue growing as a design leader and, you know, helping the the next generation of designers grow and, and find their own creative voices and become, you know, the best that they can be. And I, I really want to, you know, keep putting out great work. I want to make a positive difference in the world. Uh, like that's something I truly believe in. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm at wide eye is because, you know, they, all of them, (laughs) everyone that works there truly believes in design for good. And I think, you know, that's where I want to be. I want to keep doing design that will be a positive net good on the world.
0: Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about
1: your work and everything? Where can they find that online? Victor Ware. So that's just my my name, first and last name. Co. Don't go to dot com. That's that's a software company, and I'm still trying to <laughs> trying to get their uh, the domain for. Uh, but yeah, that that will have all my portfolio and links to my socials. That's where you find me. All right, sounds good, Victor Ware. I want to thank you
0: so so much for coming on the show. Thank you, thank Maurice. you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you really for just sharing your your journey and design. I mean it's always good to sort of see people's progression and how they've gotten to where they are. I mean, that's in part why the show is called revision path is to show the different sorts of ways that people can get to where they are. And so that's why we have people from all over the industry. And I think it's really important, you know, for folks to see how your hard work has paid off over the years, even starting your own studio and doing this while juggling a nine to five. I can see at sort of each level of your story how you've progressed to get to where you are now so i think it'll be really exciting to see
1: where you are you know in the next five years see if you if you get to that point i appreciate it um yeah it would be great to check in five years from now (laughs) and see where i'm at but yeah i appreciate talking with me today it's this was a really great conversation
0: big big thanks to victor ware and of course thanks to you for listening you can find out more about Victor and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the US, particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably, and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual based freelance life with no non competes? Check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker transcripts are courtesy of brevity and wit if you like this episode then please let us know we're on instagram and twitter just search for revision path or you can follow us on spotify you can follow us on amazon music or you can leave us a rating and a review on apple Podcasts. also if you want to call us because we have a hotline you can leave us a message on our hotline it's at 626-603-0310